Hi, and welcome back to Desert Island Dishes with Margie Broadhead. I'm loving getting all of your feedback and thoughts, so please, if you get a moment, do rate and review, and if you want to hear more, then subscribe on iTunes. This week, I met up with Pip McCormack, who is the Lifestyle Director for Red Magazine. He oversees all the food and interiors content in the best-selling women's monthly title in its field. He formerly worked as the food and interiors editor at the Sunday Times Style, and he's also created a recognizable voice for himself with his popular recipe review blog, Pip Cooks the Books. He has now published two beautiful books all about cooking with edible flowers and growing your own herbs. I wanted to catch up with Pip and find out the inspiration for the books, all about his glamorous job, and of course, pick his brains about the best places to eat in London. Pip made me some insanely good cookies, which I schnappled on the way home, and I felt very guilty that I didn't make him anything. Sorry, Pip. (laughs) I hope you all enjoy this week's episode, and I'll see you on the other side. So, although you're known for many amazing things, I first came across you when you wrote your blog, Pip Cooks the Books, which was frank. And I hope you don't mind me saying, but it was deliciously bitchy. So rather than just testing out recipe books, you actually did exactly what the recipe said. And that's not that easy because we like to meddle. And, you know, if something's boiling dry, we fix it. If you run out of something, you can just add something else. But you didn't do that. And the consequences were often hilarious. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. I mean, it was quite counterintuitive to cook exactly as the book suggests, because as you say, you really want to change things. And sometimes you think, oh, do you know what a pinch extra of this or a bit more of that will, will really make a difference. But the reason I started doing that blog was because I had lots of my friends who were not very confident cooks and they felt they would try recipes that then wouldn't work and would blame themselves. Whereas if you're a more accomplished cook, if you're looking at a recipe, you might adapt it as you go along thinking, I know this will make it a little bit better or I know that's a misprint or or whatever. And so I thought by doing this, it would sort of highlight which books were really good for anybody just to follow who wasn't a competent cook. Also might shame people into editing or triple testing their recipes a little bit more than they did. It was really fun to do because when I was writing about it, I would write about my stresses in the kitchen and then my friend sending off dinner party and getting drunk and sort of it was more about the whole evening it it sounded really fun to write which is yeah it was a good sign it was really fun but I had to do everything exactly as the recipe suggested so sometimes you might cut corners you know ordinarily and you you might sort of do something a little bit cheaper or you might kind of try something a bit quicker whereas with these like I really felt like I had to get every ingredient exactly as suggested I remember it was spending pounds and pounds and pounds doing these recipes and it kind of culminated in me doing this wonderful Simon Hopkinson Sunday lunch menu that was seven courses and cost me over hundred pounds for oh four people. And I just thought, you know what? I don't know if I can continue this blog anymore. <laughs> my bank account. I know. It. <laughs> it was absolutely wonderful. And every recipe of his, un, you know, unsurprisingly was absolute heaven. Amazing. And I, I the beetroot course took me three days to cook. It <gasps> oh my was goodness, one of those, what was it? Well, it was this weird sort of jelly situation and you had to peel the beetroot and then strain it and then cook it and then set it and then do it again and do it again. I actually met Simon recently and told him that I'd done this. And he said, oh, there's a much easier way of doing it. If you ever do it again, let me know and I'll give you the shortcut. <laughs> Great. I went through the whole labour of love, Simon. I know. Can we hear about a recipe that maybe went the least according to plan? There was one from a former soap star turned recipe writer who I think is maybe back to being a soap star again now. I haven't heard of them doing recipes recently. But I remember um, doing a jam roly-poly from their book that literally was just 
a flat mush on the tray. <laughs> and in fact, it was the culmination of a whole lot of bad courses. And I was one of the people around the table I'd never cooked for before. And oh, I thought, no. so embarrassed. I said, look, I can actually cook. <laughs> oh, no, this, every, is just a, this is just for the blog. Everything has to come with a caveat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's actually really, really stressful. It was really embarrassing. And I, and, I, and I just, yeah, sort of giving them this lumpy, like, bit of suet thing that was basically inedible that was unfortunate <laughs> well, that sounds delicious <laughs> the perfect time to cut to the first desert island dish of the day and that pip is the dish that most reminds you of your childhood um so i remember when i was about must have been about four and a half years old going on my first day to school to check it out before i started in the you know the following term and i remember my mum making me spaghetti hoops and boiled ham and I remember it so clearly and I remember getting a spot of the tomato sauce on my jumper and going to school with it anyway but just the flavors of boiled ham and I and I don't eat spaghetti hoops very often anymore but whenever I have like a big salty gammon joint I always think of my childhood oh that's so nice okay so let's talk about your books you've got two books which have been published which is awesome thank you what was the initial inspiration behind the herb and flower cookbook what what gave you the idea well I just moved into my boyfriend's flat at the time and he had a big balcony, which he'd never done anything to. There was a couple of old Ikea folding chairs, an ashtray that got used at parties and still had a dirty cigarette butt floating nice. in it. And really amazing views across the London Eye but, and quite a lot of space, but just nothing on it. So I thought I would turn it into a bit of a kitchen garden and might add some herbs and might be able to use it as a bit of an extension for a larder. And then as I was doing it, I kind of thought this could maybe make a book. I didn't know much about gardening at the time. I was coming at it very much from a a cook's point of view. But I thought there's all these ingredients and I'm sure there's something in the idea of growing. This was 2013. And And at the time I thought, you know, I'm sure there's something in the idea of growing for yourself, that satisfaction, which seems to be something that's very common now but at the time maybe people weren't quite so aware of in quite the same way in urban settings so I started cooking all these recipes with stuff from the balcony and then that sort of gradually became amazing I read somewhere that your balcony has been described as the mini hanging gardens of Southwark which sounds beautiful (laughs) thank you I mean I did come up with that description myself (laughs) Um, nothing wrong with that but um yeah I mean I sort of we had these uh hanging gardens at the side you know a wall garden and the problem I have is I'm not very good at keeping plants alive my goodness me neither Um, and I sort of learned not to take it personally and plants (laughs) just die and especially in London when they're high up and there's wind and there's seasons and there's rain and everything else um so I every time there was a photo shoot on the balcony I used to have to run to B&Q and get loads of other pots oh my god I love that the herbs would always do all right but then the extra kind of supporting greenery would need a bit of extra love oh I actually find that really encouraging because I was going to ask if you've always been a good gardener and I like that maybe it hasn't always come naturally no I'm very much a kind of an on the a learning gardener and so when I write the books about them it's um my I try and put the knowledge forward that I've discovered through you through doing it myself and through internet research but in a way that's really approachable for people that don't garden at yeah, all. Yeah and you definitely have achieved that thank like you. I'm the most ungreen fingered person ever and you've given me hope. Thank you very I much. I wondered for people like me who don't know where to start what's the easiest herb or flower to grow? Uh, mint. Mint. Yeah it springs up it's so easy to go from seed. Some herbs are actually better to not grow from seed like if you buy a rosemary plant it's actually easier obviously okay. of course because yeah. it's already a plant but actually, I like the sound of that. Yeah, it's quite hard to get a rosemary <laughs> seed going. The other thing to remember is that supermarket plants are not made to 
live forever. Okay. They're really, they're, they're the equivalent of battery farmed hens, you know, okay. they're sort of short shelf life. So you shouldn't feel bad. You no, know, if, like, if you die. replant them, they're not really going to grow. Like if you want to buy a herb plant, get them from a garden centre where they're actually made to grow. Yes. A top tip from Pip. <laughs> okay, so moving on to the second desert island dish of the day. What's the first dish that you learned to cook? So I went to boarding school when I was about 11. And um, when I came home in the holidays, I didn't really have any friends in the area. So I had long summer holidays with not much to do. And so I decided to just learn my way through my mother's cookbooks. And I went through her very, this was the early 90s. And I went through her very dated, even then, cookbook. So she had a lot of Mary Berry. Yeah. She had a lot of 70s dairy cookbook, I think it was. The food photography was incredible. I think there's blogs (laughs) dedicated to these books now. But Mary Berry's Rock Cakes was my first thing that I did. And I did them so many times. I think my poor parents were sick of them by the end. Do you know what? I don't think I've ever had a rock cake. Is it like a scone? Mm, It's sort of like a cross between a scone and and a... biscuits it's okay a, it's a cakey biscuit like a, a hard one yeah so it's sort of hard on the outside and if you get it right soft on the inside is it because it looks like a rock yes and mm-hmm. then they're not forming you basically just dollop them onto the tray and they Great. kind of yeah so they're quite easy and the merry berry one i remember came full of like mixed peel and currants and i remember once my mother saying to me oh i think this is your best batch yet because oh. maybe you used a bit of less baking powder or oh. firepower. <laughs> like, so then i learned that was when i sort of learned to like not always follow the recipe exactly and to kind of ah, go with your instincts that's cool too. so that started at a really young yeah age. i hadn't really thought of it that way but i think yeah maybe that was it yeah oh, that's awesome <laughs> so i think i'm right in saying that you live in southwark yeah so you obviously have loads of amazing foodie places around you and obviously road testing restaurants is part of your job Yes. And but where are your favorite places to eat? So my favorite restaurant at the moment is a place called Casa Crout on Bermondsey Street. Um, It opened probably about three or four years ago. And it's been my favorite place ever since. It's really small. It's French. The staff are sort of charmingly rude. They sort of (laughs) shout over your head and they're not really, you don't always acknowledge you, but they kind of, your food always turns up as and when it's meant to. Yeah. And it's amazing and it's tiny and it's bustling and it's perfect for dates. And what's the best thing that you've had there? What should we Um, order? There's a really incredible uh, rabbit in a mustard sauce dish, which sounds heavy and not very current, but it's just perfect. Really satisfying. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. Okay. So how about this? I've got a challenge for you. Okay. Someone has come into London for 24 hours and they need recommendations for breakfast, lunch and supper. You're in charge of planning. Where should they go? Oh, it sounds like they've got a fun day ahead of themselves, a lot of eating. (laughs) So I would start off, maybe have brunch at a Noppy, Otlingi's restaurant in Piccadilly. I think he does the best shakshuka in town and it's just really lovely in there. What makes his... So there's a really nice spiciness to it. It comes with a bit of labno, which adds a bit of creaminess. The ciabatta that comes on the side is really crispy and drenched in oil. Just all the kind of textures and flavours really work well together. And I really like the styling in there. It's sort of chic, but open and light at the same time. It's very nice place to start. And then you're in the middle of town. So I'm going to assume this is a Saturday because that seems like a a fun day. So then I would suggest heading to um, Maltby Street Market, which is near where I live and trying everything you've got going along down there and then having lunch maybe at Casa Crout on Bermondsey Street yeah while you're at that end of town then you might need a bit of a break in in the afternoon maybe you might a need nap. a walk yes a walk and a nap <laughs> and if you're feeling flush I would then recommend going to spring at Somerset House oh yes oh wonderful Sky Ginger the chef there is such an incredible cook amazing and her way with flavors is wonderful and the way that she can make three things like I remember having a veal joint there and it was so tender and it was just served with sage and butter 
but the three together, she just did it in such a way. It was just perfect. It's the best meal I've ever had. Really? Um, Ooh, that sounds delicious. It was wonderful. And the dining room was really beautiful. So I would really highly recommend that. She's all about just fresh, simple ingredients. Isn't and she? in fact, yeah, she is. And she was the first person I really came across using edible flowers all those years ago that was kind of inspired by interest that then launched oh, the book. That's interesting. She, yeah, I remember interviewing her in 2012 at Heckfield Place, which is a hotel which she was attached to down in um, Hampshire. And we were in the walled garden and she was using like Sicily flowers and oh. very pretty things. And it sort of made me realise that flowers can be more about flavour than just look. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're past the point where people sort of pick off the edible flowers. Yeah, I hope just, so. It's not just a garnish, I hope so. That's they my, are delicious. That's my mission. And it's like a lot, of the, a lot of the flowers are just decoration, but things like nasturtiums are so peppery. And marigold is almost like salt in its, in its petals. Obviously, you've got the more floral flavours like rose and lilac and lavender. Yeah. But I think there are some really beautiful savoury ones too. Definitely. Yeah. Did you ever make it to Petersham Nurseries? Uh, not while Sky was there. No, me neither. So annoyed about I know. it. But that spring feels like a, you know, a, a happy place to, to eat at Definitely. Now. And then to end off this very piggy day, is there anywhere we can go for pudding? Oh, interesting. <laughs> Do you know what? So I actually thought that the dessert menu at Sexy Fish was wonderful. Was it? It was so much better than it has sort of any right to be because Sexy Fish, when it opened, was all about who was going to be there, like which famous people were going to be there, yeah. wh- who you were going to spot, what you were going to wear, the, what music might be on, quite intimidating. Yeah. And I went when it first opened, and it's it sort of, it's Asian-inspired menu anyway, so there's lots of kind of Eastern flavours, which again are not necessarily known for their desserts. No. But the desserts, I remember, were incredible. There were lots of kind of yuzu meringues, and mm. it was really wonderful. And I think it would be a fun place to have for a De- nightcap yeah. as well. Def- okay, this sounds like a day that good I would day. definitely Let's like do to it. do. <laughs> okay, moving on. What is your favourite sandwich? Well, so I have recently had to become dairy free after years of not being so. So it's been about six months now, which has therefore changed my lunchtime habits yes, quite considerably. I imagine. So I now have peanut butter on everything because it's a really good source of protein, <laughs> yeah. um, which I, I eat a lot of protein anyway. I'm not vegan, but I just find with not having a milk and, and things anyway, like it's just important. So, and it's delicious. And it's delicious. <laughs> and it's delicious. So I smother peanut butter on, I really like it on a bagel. Bagels are dairy free as well. And I smother it and then I'll have it with cucumber and cherry tomatoes on top. Wait, hang on a second. I know. Wait, peanut butter, cucumber and tomatoes. And then, and then mint leaves. <laughs> I mean, I I'm going to trust you it's that left that's field. delicious, but it is a that little... sounds intriguing. When I put... That sounds like a pregnancy snack. It does a bit, doesn't it? It sounds like an odd <laughs> craving. Um, when I do it in the office, people are like, really? But do you know what? They're like, Pip, don't you have a cookbook out? I know, but I'm like, trust me, the textures and the flavours, I think the cucumber really like works with peanut butter. Also, like quite a few people in the red office would, of an afternoon 4pm craving would just have an apple dipped in peanut butter. Yeah. It's kind of the same it's thing. It's the same. Yeah, sure, sure. Try it. I think you might I'm be definitely I'm going to try it. But also the mint, the mint at the end gives it a little juice. Yeah, okay, yeah, for sure. Okay, I like, I think that might be the most intriguing sandwich choice <laughs> we've had. Okay, so let's go back to the book for a moment. How did the opportunity to write a book come about? Because it's something that I think people are always keen to hear. How did you have the initial idea and then get your book deal? So I've been a journalist now for nearly 15 years, writing about food and interiors, um, working at magazines. I was on the launch team of Grazia, then I was at Sunday Time Style for five years, and, and now I've been at Red for the last five. Very cool, by the way. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been, <laughs> it's been really fun to work on all those brands. Within that time, I've obviously spoken to lots of publishers when I've been interviewing their authors or featuring their books or doing recipe extracts. 
but I had relationships with the authors already. So this is really unhelpful for most yeah. people. <laughs> I know already. So anyway, so I had the idea for the book and I emailed the press offices at all the different publishing houses. And I said, who can I send this idea to? And so they helped me get the idea in front of the right people. And then that's, that's so how it cool. came about. Okay. So you work in the industry for 15 years. Yeah, and sure. Then... <laughs> and then get the book. But then that's not always a guarantee because since then I have pitched out another book which didn't get anywhere. Okay. Well, yeah, so... I was going to say it doesn't take anything away from you because if the idea is not good, it's not going to... No, I know. And so... But wait, why is the second one not being... Well, I don't know because the first book did all right. It, it did more than all right. <laughs> it did all right. It, it, it did okay. It won an award and it sort of... Um, and it got stocked in, in some good places and had some good coverage. Okay. I'm trying, very much. No, I'm... I, but also, like, it, you know, it's, it didn't, like, set the world alight. It was ne- you know, it was never going to compete with, and, you know, the Ottolenghi's on Nigella's of this world. And as my agent said to me when we were looking at the figures, she said, well... You know, it's a book about herbs and flowers. What else did you expect? <laughs> so I think, you know, it, it, did, did, it, it did all right. It, really it did well. all right. So anyway, so I kind of thought the first one had been quite easy to get off the ground. The idea, I guess, seemed right at the time. And I thought, you know, I've done a book already. I've proved myself. I've proved I can write a recipe. It'll be easy to do a second book. I was wrong. That is interesting because, yeah, you do think like you did prove yourself. Yeah. So anyway, so I pitched out an idea and for whatever reason, it wasn't wasn't the right idea at the right time. And I think really what it that, what that shows, it does come down to it being as much about the idea as it does about your contacts. Definitely. So, and it won't be anything bad about you. It's just not the right time for whatever exactly, that might be. Exactly. And publishing is very, very cyclical. So at the time when I was pitching it out, it was a time when people with very big Instagram followings were getting books and people without them weren't. And um, so that was a factor. And then after that, I tried again a little bit later and that was a time when everybody was focusing on clean eating and that's all anybody wanted because clean eating was really selling and those books are selling. So it's about sort of picking your moment and having the right idea at the right time, I think. Yeah, sure. I think that's... But I'm trying not to take it too personally. No, absolutely don't take it personally. There's definitely, you're definitely going to get more stuff published for sure. And the actual practicalities of writing the book how long did it take and what was the biggest challenge for you? So the biggest challenge for that book was that the turnaround was quite quick. So I pitched it out in the March and because of it being about herbs and flowers, they wanted it to come out the following spring. Yeah. So it needed to be completely finished, written and shot by September in order for them to then get it all laid out. And when you say... You pitched it in the spring. Does that mean? So I had the idea. I was literally putting the herbs on the balcony. It was spring, you know, so I thought, oh, now's the time to put a few herbs on the balcony. Pitched the idea in March. Oh, my goodness. Uh, they, March commissioned it. they commissioned it in the April. And then I had to send it around, of course, whilst doing a full time job. Oh. But you know what? I'm a, I, you know, I'd been on a newspaper for five years at that point on a week and on a Sunday time. So I was used to deadlines. So actually having a deadline was quite good for me. And if you want something done, ask a busy person. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> yeah, true. But also I think this, so I have in the, in the distant past, I have tried to write novels before and not anywhere with them. And I think novel to me feels like an insurmountable task that, you know, you're starting and you've got a hundred thousand words ahead of you and you're like, where do you even begin? Whereas a recipe book is really episodic. So, mm. you know, I would do, I'd get up at 6am and I'd test a recipe and then maybe on my lunch break, I would write it up. And then that was one more recipe done. And then yeah, you would sort you can of be more methodical. Could, yeah. And it felt like much more achievable because you could break it down. Ooh, that's exciting. Does that mean maybe there's a novel in the work? No, there definitely isn't a novel in the work because <laughs> it's so bloody hard to write a novel. Oh my god! Never say never, Pip. Um, okay. Fifth Desert Island dish of the day. What is the dish that you eat the most often? So at the moment, it's chicken breast. 
Okay. Because I am on this diet where I have to eat 4,000 calories a day, including 150 grams of protein a day. 4,000? Yes, because I'm working out a lot and bulking I mean, I was, up. I was going to say, your arms are very <laughs> impressive. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so I have to eat to support that. Is this just for fun? Or, yeah, it's just yeah, for fun. And because I'm, I'm single, so, okay, you know. Okay, yeah. You know. You're looking great. Thank you. So, you know, you've got, to, you've got to do what you can when you find yourself 36 and single. So, yeah, at the moment, all I'm eating is chicken breast. And it started on the first or second day. <laughs> when you say all, is isn't just on its own. Uh, well, so I'll have <laughs> yeah, it as a snack. Yeah, so I'll be sat at my desk at half past 11, just joylessly shoving a chicken breast in. But so on the first or second day of doing this about two months ago, I thought this is the most awful experience of my life. This is not fun and food is meant to be fun. And what I love about food is how fun and convivial and wonderful it is. Yeah. And just shoving in a chicken breast for the sake of it really didn't seem fun. However, once you've been doing it for two or three days, you suddenly start to really enjoy the taste yeah. and the, the enjoyment of actually just being able to eat everything you want whenever you want it, really. So now I find myself dipping chicken breast into a pot of hummus as if it was a crudite. Oh, yeah. Uh, like I've a cucumber stick. Yeah, I have been known to do that <laughs> <Yeah>. before. <laughs> and actually now it's, it's really fun. So It's yeah. weird how quickly things can become the norm. Isn't it, Jazz? <laughs> also, yeah, if um, eating chicken breast gives me arms like that, I'm going to go home and eat some chicken. So you have worked for some of the biggest names in British media, the Sunday Times, Style, Grazia, and now Red. I wondered which part of your job do you enjoy the most? Um, it's definitely been the restaurant reviews for yeah. sure. I mean, that's like I mean, it's, job. it's so much fun, and you know, I'm I do it on a complete in a completely different way to the way that you know the, the Sunday Times or you know or the papers would do it, where they send in their big name reviewers. You know, we do I do roundups of Red Online of the best restaurants in Covent Garden, say, or the best restaurants in Soho. So um, it, it it's not as so fun. It's really fun. There's a lot less pressure, I think, because they're not. I don't have to articulate these wonderful, joyful essays in the way that A. A. Gill did, or Giles Corrin does, or Marina O'Loughlin, who really makes you feel like you can taste the food as she the way she describes it. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So I don't do any of that, which I would love to do that one day, but. At the moment, it's just a fun thing where I pop out for dinner, enjoy it, and then just write up really yeah. what I have pictures and, and recommend it. What do you do when you don't enjoy it? There have been times where I haven't enjoyed the meal. And in that case, I just don't write it up. Okay. So because oh, you're I, so nice. Well, also because, you know, the people, the reason people come to Red Online for food reviews is because they're looking for ideas and tips. They're not looking for yeah. the, because the, it can be really enjoyable when you read a review in the papers that Slate's a restaurant, but that's not what they come to us for. So I don't no. have to do any of that. So yeah. I just ignore it. You know, you do just think you can understand why people, if that's their job, they, they, you know, they have to give an honest opinion, but you just think of the person on the other end of it. Oh, it's mortifying. crushing. And it could have just been an awful day. I know. And also the problem is these reviewers go in, you know, on the day one, week one, whatever. And often it takes time to bed in. Yeah, definitely. And I've been back to restaurants, you know, six months later and they've been greatly improved or completely changed or whatever. Yeah. I think it's unfortunate. They change so, and I guess the opposite can happen too. Like, you know, places can go downhill and you just, you you need to read a review and then act on it as you read it because it might not be the same in a year. I agree. I agree. And I know that Faye Mashler at the Standard is, is like, you know, known for the, for going in like straight away. Whereas some, I I know that Marina and Jay Rayner tend to sometimes wait a little bit and it's not always the newest, hottest place. Yeah, because I think that's the thing, isn't it? There are so many different restaurants. It doesn't always have to be the newest place. Like I like no. that's what I like about your roundups. It's not always like 
you know, this new thing that's opened. It's just in this particular area. These are the places that you should be checking out. Yeah, and I try, and I also think if a rest, it's so difficult to open a restaurant these days and to run it with, you know, spiraling costs and staff issues and Brexit and so and, and, and everything else that, that, that goes into doing a restaurant, that if a restaurant is still existing in six months to a year, then it probably is doing something right because yeah. it's clearly getting enough people through the door yeah, that's in so order true. to, you know, so it must be good. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good way of looking at mm. it. Okay, right. Moving on to your sixth desert island dish of the day. What is your go-to dinner party dish? So the way I like to entertain is I like to put um, sort of maybe a roast chicken probably in the middle of the table and then three... A pot of hummus? Uh, a pot of hummus. <laughs> uh, and then maybe three or four salads around the side. So, and then everybody kind of helps themselves and I get somebody else to carve the bird and everybody feels really engaged and involved and yeah. everyone passing dishes and and there's not quite enough room on the table really for everything and, and all the different serving spoons and stuff like that. So that's the way I like to do it. I find it's really helps make food feel more casual and convivial. Definitely. There's a book I'm cooking from a lot at the moment called The Beauty Chef Ooh. by Carla Oates that came out in September and she's Australian and her recipes are meant to make you glow from the outside by Ooh. being very good on the inside, which I'm sure they probably do, but they're also delicious and she uses a lot of the flavours that I love, these kind of Middle Eastern inspired type things. So at the moment, I'm doing lots of kind of her salads and, you, you know, she uses things like za'atar and cinnamon and, and all those, you know, and on vegetables and, and in a really nice way. Yeah, well, that's so, yeah, tip. she's my check that out. So I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but do you like entertaining and are you a good host? So I love entertaining because I like showing off about my <laughs> cooking because I feel like I, could, I feel fairly competent in it like I'm not I haven't got technique like I could never be a pastry chef and my pastry never like, it tastes okay but it never looks beautiful so I don't have the finesse of those but I I feel fairly competent in the kitchen because I cook so much yeah so and I think most of cooking is just confidence definitely so yeah so I do like that because I like showing off Nigella once said something really interesting which I always hark back to and really when she said it it was like a light bulb moment Ooh, for me is it and she said um there's a belief that people who like cooking are very nurturing, but actually I think people who like cooking are just very controlling. And suddenly <laughs> it just all clicked into place. Oh my God, yeah, like, that's of so course, true. It's so true because of course for me, when I'm hosting, that means I get to pick who's around the table. I get to make sure that we're eating something that I know that I'm going to enjoy and that everyone else will enjoy. I get, it, it all comes down to me. Whereas if you go to somebody else's for dinner, you know, you may, I, I get a bit nervous sometimes around new people or, or you worry that you may not have the best time, even though, of course, it's always lovely yeah. to be cooked or maybe, for. Yeah, maybe you're not going to like what they've made. Exactly. Or, you know, there's all these all these different worries, which is very silly because, of course, it's lovely when anybody invites me over yeah. for dinner. But I think there's an element of that control that I quite like to have when I've curated the whole evening myself. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so what are your top tips for throwing an awesome dinner party? Um, I So I like to plan it fairly far in advance. So I will, if I'm, if I've got, some people coming, I'll probably start looking at recipe books maybe a, cu- a week or so before, maybe on the Monday. Yeah. Like not in a... I thought you no. were going to be like a couple of months before. No, no, no. <laughs> not in a really, not in a really stressful way, but I'll no. just sort of start, no, make it less like, start thinking of ideas and I'll, and, it, and it's a really enjoyable thing for me is to pour through the recipe books and pick out what I'm going to cook or yeah. remember. And then, so then I'll kind of do the shopping list then so I know what I've got to get throughout the week. And then also at that point, I'll start thinking about, well, is there anything that can be done in advance? Because that's also the key. So then... Probably if people are coming on the Saturday, like maybe on the Thursday evening, I'll have prepped a little bit if I'm at home. Yeah. And then on Saturday, you've only got a few little bits to finish off and then you can just do it. So it's kind of, I think, start thinking about it early, but not in a way that it stresses you out, in yes. a way to calm you. So yes. you've got it in control. Yeah, that's so true. What's the 
Winston Churchill saying, like, failing to plan is planning to fail. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Very eloquently yeah. put by me. Okay, we're, I can't believe it, but we're on to the last <laughs> Desert Island dish. And that is the last dish you would eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. Well, I guess if I'm being cast off to... Oh, I'm not sorry. Okay, see, when I was thinking about this earlier, of course, I forgot we were going to Desert Island. I was imagining that it was to be my death row meal. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and I was thinking, if, I, if I'm about to be killed, then yeah. I can eat dairy again because it doesn't matter. Oh, um, so I saw it, Whereas if I'm on an island, I probably don't want to start off feeling ill from eating dairy. No, although so, I guess you could just like sleep it off. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> oh, that's true. And actually, like, let's go out with a bang because I'm going to be eating coconut milk forever. <laughs> so true. let's go with dairy. In which case, I'll go back to my dairy loving ways and I would have a lasagna covered in cheese. I don't like a lot of people say to me when I tell them I've gone dairy free that they would miss cheese too much. I like cheese. I don't I haven't craved it in any okay. real way. Yeah, that because that is um, one thing that most people say. Yeah. It? The hardest thing for me has been Carrie's dairy milk chocolate. So I would start with a great lasagna covered in cheese and bechamel. And then I would have a slice of Theo Randall's lemon tart, which um, I have made a dairy-free version of, and it is good. But when it's done with real butter is incredible. Mm. Uh, what makes his so good? Oh my gosh, the amount of butter and oh. sugar in it. <laughs> That's always <laughs> the answer yeah. when you're like, hmm, Funny what is that. it? <laughs> it's so much butter and so oh. much sugar in it. And it's so delicious. Yum. And then a big slab of Carrie's dairy milk. That sounds like Great last meal. Okay, and so we're going to send you off to the desert island, but you're also, you're allowed to take one luxury item. What are you going to take? So whenever I go on holiday, I always, always, always take a lemon zester with me. Um, <laughs> but like any kind of holiday? Well, I mean, not if I'm going to Ibiza or like clubbing, but uh, normally most of my holidays are in a villa somewhere and I'll be doing some cooking. Yeah. So I will always take a lemon zester with me. Love that. Yeah, because they never have They never them. have them. No, and the lemon zester changes everything and i'm assuming on this desert island there might be some kind of citrus fruit I mean, maybe yeah, i mean sure course. why not <laughs> um so i would take a lemon zester so that i can add that to any any like weird things that i find growing on the island yes i love that you you are very welcome to have that thank you thank you so much for letting us thank you so much island dishes thank you Right, so I need to make that delicious sounding 24 hours eating extravaganza in London happen immediately. It sounds so good. What are we all thinking about the unusual combination of peanut butter, tomato, cucumber and mint? There is never any judgment on this podcast and I vow to keep an open mind until I try it. Thank you for listening and until next time, you can come and find me on Instagram at madebymargie.com And you can read about other episodes at desertislanddishespodcast.com. Bye.